Welcome, fellow survivors, to another episode of A Rail Tour of Post-Apocalyptic England. I'm your host and amateur exologist Richard Oliver. Last week we managed to save civilization from the software update for the human mind created by the Hayward Institute. Fortunately, a suitably high dose of a popular recreational but illegal drug caused the update to be deleted from amongst those on board. The drug is only illegal because of the extremely high level of contentment it causes, and the central government authority is worried that people may lose themselves in a never-ending quest for complete contentment. Unfortunately, in saving the world, we had caused considerable damage to the train. Thankfully, our nuclear reactor was still working, but the engine needed a great deal of work. For the time being, we were stuck, and I didn't like it. While I have talked often about the formidable array of weaponry at our disposal, the most effective defence we have is that we can run away very quickly. But for now, we weren't going anywhere. The captain ordered 24-hour patrols around the train by the soldiers, and had apparently implemented several secret emergency plans rumoured to include the train's complement of doomsday devices. I didn't believe those rumours, if for no other reason than I knew to get anywhere near those devices you had to go through a nightmarish amount of red tape. The captain also sent out our six scouts to check out what threats might be lurking in the vicinity. I've mentioned our scouts in passing before, but I think they deserve a bit more attention. If the train is the pioneering engine of exploration, venturing into unknown dangers, the scouts are the ones who will give us some idea of what we are venturing into. They travel out into the wilderness, alone, normally with just the clothes on their back and supplies for a couple of days. Many of them don't even carry weapons. I have a great deal of admiration for them, so when only one of them returned, I was genuinely upset. The sole survivor of the six, Conrad, had not seen anything particularly threatening, aside from the standard post-apocalyptic signs of destruction and chaos. Conrad had been eager to go and search for his comrades, but the captain forbade it, not wanting to risk more lives. Unsurprisingly, Conrad disobeyed and rode off on his motorcycle at the first chance he got. He did not return. With this problem hanging over us, tensions on board rose quickly, with more than a few fights breaking out. I had good days and bad days. On bad days, I stayed in my carriage, didn't talk to anyone, and drank heavily. On good days, I went to the dining car, didn't talk to anyone, drank heavily, and ate food. I was as scared as anyone as what might be coming, but unlike many of the other people on board, I was of very little use. My skills, such as they are, were not needed. Rumours about what was out there began to circulate, and grew wild with each repetition. Since time immemorial, rumours have had a tendency to escalate quickly. But in the post-apocalypse, after all the supposedly impossible horrors we've seen, the problem was exponentially worse. In the space of an hour, I had heard that anything from swarms of giant bats to invisible lightning were the cause of the disappearances. When the danger finally showed itself, it was simultaneously better and worse than many had expected. It was no mutated creature, no unstoppable freak weather, no intelligent rock monster. The danger turned out to be people. Ordinary people. Relatively ordinary, anyway. I am not someone who holds to the idea that the worst monster of all is mankind. I have seen far worse things than man. But it's hard to deny the fact that when it wants to be, mankind can be vicious, greedy and cruel. I was very lucky that during the apocalypse, I was protected from the worst of what mankind did to each other. But I had seen enough. Enough to recognise the type of people who brought back our scouts. 
They were people who had already crossed the line they never thought they would get anywhere near, who had abandoned every principle, every moral code, who would do anything to survive. I had been in the dining car when an alarm rang out, ruining the relatively calm atmosphere. The train has numerous alarms and sirens, and when I first joined the train, I had thought I would never learn them all, but as emergency situations were rather common, it didn't take long. This alarm was for a hostile local population. It was late at night, but the surrounding area was illuminated thanks to the train's powerful lights, so I could see who was causing the disturbance. On a small hill near a track, I could see 50 or so people. They had several cars and vans, and they appeared to be armed. But even in a post-apocalyptic world, this was still England, and very few of them had guns, and I suspected even fewer bullets. After the decades of the apocalypse, it was entirely possible that our train represented the most heavily armed group in the country. But what they lacked in traditional firepower, they had made up for in improvised weapons that looked very dangerous. Catapults, trebuchets, battering rams, devices that could fire spears and arrows. If nothing else, they seemed quite handy. Recruitment. It is often easy to forget that while millions of people are fighting to survive the apocalypse, other millions of people are trying to survive the post-apocalypse. And one thing you need in the post-apocalypse is a job. So here are a few organisations that are actively recruiting. The Weird Adler Company. The biggest, richest and most successful company in the world are looking for new employees in the divisions of disposable mercenaries, invasive species management technicians and plague zone coordinators. Complying with central government authority law, the Weird Adler Company has made it clear that it estimates that 75% of new employees will die within the first two weeks, but adds that employees will be paid first time and any deceased staff who are resurrected and or reanimated will be offered a position with the company. Despite the high mortality rate and arguably far worse fate suffered by those who manage to survive, competition is fierce for these limited positions. Apply via the Wade Adler website, visit your local Wade Adler Society interface, or tape a handwritten note to the inside of your dustbin, and they will find it as part of their regular corporate snooping. The Learned Society Visionaries is an up-and-coming secret society with world, or at least continental domination in its science. Membership to the society is not an offer, but rather a position in the multitude of assassins, saboteurs, spies, assorted henchmen, as well as servants and lackeys. The society understands that there is a glut of secret societies in the world, and they also understand that most secret societies are, well, secret, and after this initial flurry of publicity will return to the shadows to further advance their aims. Those looking to apply should draw an eye on their front door with chalk. Finally, do any of you remember the mad and clearly doomed band of astronauts who set out to colonise the moon? While I am surprised as anyone to learn they have been in touch and are looking for the next wave of colonists. They are looking for healthy young people who are intelligent, hard-working and have no moral objections to wiping out the surprisingly diverse indigenous life forms they have found. Those interested should find a place with little artificial light and on August the 18th at precisely 8.42pm go to that place with a torch or flashlight to our American cousins and point it into the sky. Two things to mention. First, the time zone. They didn't mention one, so like always I will assume it is Greenwich Mean Time, which as you know I hold to be real time. 
Secondly, experts from the United Space Organization have estimated that there is a 1 in 2 chance this is a trap. A trap laid by whom and for what purpose, they don't know. Back to the narrative. While I don't like to make assumptions, it did seem this group were indeed, as the alarm suggested, hostile. It was then that I realised I didn't quite appreciate the scale of the problem. I was looking out the left side window, but a lot of other people in the dining car were looking out the right side window, where a similar sized group had appeared. It was beginning to look like we were being surrounded. I watched nervously for signs of movement. I knew our soldiers would be in position and ready to fire, and really 100 people without guns would not fare well in direct assault. I ran back to my carriage to find my binoculars, only to find Zofia already using them, peering out at the gang. I was concerned to see Zofia was back wearing her old uniform, the one she wore when she had fought for Napoleon Bonaparte, complete with a cavalry sabre. Even though Sophia's skills were grounded very much in early 19th century guerrilla warfare, I suspected she would prove herself exceptionally useful in any confrontation. I guessed that the return of her uniform meant she thought a fight was coming. They have Conrad, she said quietly, and handed me the binoculars. I looked out and saw Sophia was right. In the midst of a group of these marauders was Conrad. I scanned the group for other scouts and only saw a way. She was standing a little to the right of Conrad. Even with the binoculars, I couldn't tell what condition they were in. They were standing, without any obvious restraints or weapons pointed at them. A similar confrontation in Spain had seen the gang build their own gallows in front of us while holding a soldier hostage, and the lack of such theatrics was promising. I then took a look at the gang members themselves, and was actually quite surprised. Gangs such as this are quite common. Roving bands of marauders, a mix of pirate, scavenger and folk. They have been known to number in their thousands, and some have become infamous for their nefarious deeds. These gangs usually had a brutal streak a mile wide, willing to do anything to get what they wanted, which usually revolved around getting more guns and more food. The gangs were all very different, but they all dressed in a way to intimidate. They all wanted to look fearsome, wearing leather, war paint, terrifying masks, but not this gang. They actually looked rather smart with the primary material using their clothes seeming to be tweed. This peculiar standoff lasted until after dawn. The sun rose and very little had changed. They had not attacked or tried to communicate with us. If the gang hoped to use Conrad and Way as bargaining chips, they would be disappointed. We had been in similar situations in the past, and the captain had never even considered negotiating. She believed in projecting an image of strength at all times. It wasn't that she didn't care about Conrad or Way, or indeed any of the others in the past, but she knew that negotiation alone wouldn't get her people back. Zofia and I had spent the few hours keeping an easy watch on what was going on outside, as well as watching Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy as Sophia continued her classic TV show binge. As we watched, she pestered me with questions about the Cold War, Russia, and Alec Guinness's glasses that I only half knew the answers to. Conveniently, just as the credits started to roll on the final episode, things began to happen. There was a loud knock on my carriage door. The sort of knock that indicated this was not a pleasant social call, but important and powerful people were coming to ask something of me, and I wasn't really allowed to say no. It was the captain, and she did not look pleased. It seemed that one of the gang had been caught trying to get on board. She had claimed she was a messenger, and whilst she did have a sealed envelope from their leader, everyone suspected this was a useful cover should she have been detected. The leader of the gang, a man named Cartwright, wanted to parlay. 
he even used that word. In the letter, Cartwright had been very friendly and polite. He had even realised that the captain would not take a stupid risk like meeting him herself, and he had suggested an alternative representer. Me. Apparently, Cartwright had listened to my podcast. This was not the first time this has happened, and some people have actually believed that it was me who was in charge, and that the train's primary mission was to broadcast the show. No one on the train found this amusing, least of all me, as it led me into scenarios just like this one. The captain assured me I wouldn't be going alone, but I'd be going with half a dozen soldiers, including Sergeant Tacitus O'Cal, a no-nonsense man who would keep me on the right track. Sophia insisted on coming along too, and while I had half-heartedly attempted to convince her to stay on the train, I was very happy that she was coming with us. It wasn't that I didn't trust the soldiers exactly, but I knew Sophia was heavily invested in me coming out this alive. They probably had more pressing concerns on their mind. I packed a few things I thought I'd need and as usual turned down offers of a gun, and then met Sophia and O'Cal and his soldiers. While Sophia had kept her early 19th century cavalry sabre, she had also brought a very modern looking automatic pistol. It was at this point I also met the marauder who had been sent to deliver a message, and or secretly get on board the train. Her name was Anders. She was not dressed like her comrades, but was if anything even more unusual. She wore a mud splattered three piece dinner suit, some of you might know it as a tuxedo. She had short brown hair, but not in the utilitarian way I was used to seeing short hair women. It had an actual style. Whatever reassuring impression that her clothes and appearance gave was offset by the stiletto knife she was playing with. So me, Zofia, Okan and five of his soldiers and Anders walked the hill to meet the gang's leader, Cartwright. As we neared the gang, I got a good look at their leader. He appeared to be in his mid-sixties. He had a well-worn face with a thick beard of grey hair. All I could really make out of his clothes were a heavy tweed coat and a pair of brown leather country boots. We were greeted like welcome guests and not as hostage negotiators. Cartwright rushed forward, leaving the safety of his gun, a smile on his face, and before I knew what he was doing, he embraced me in a hug. I am not one for hugging, or indeed any ovate display of emotions. After all, that is what alcohol does to me, and if I can do that sober, what's the point of drinking? Cartwright, however, seemed far more relaxed about such things. He embraced Anders, and it looked like for a moment he would try that with Sophia before sensibly opting for a handshake. As for O'Carl and his soldiers, he barely even glanced at them. Still in shock from my encounter, I couldn't stop him when he returned and put his arm around my shoulders in a friendly manner and led me back towards his gang. So, you must be Richard Oliver, he said. I've been listening to your show for the past couple of weeks. Newman, give me the radio. One of Cartwright's men threw him a small wind-up radio. Cartwright cranked it a few times and turned it on and I heard my own voice. Best thing on the radio, he said. Not that there's much choice, Cartwright tossed the radio back to Newman. While most people get my show as a downloadable podcast, it is broadcast in numerous forms so as try to get as big an audience as possible, and in most places simply getting on the air was enough to guarantee listeners. I had been periodically tuning my radio in while travelling through England, and there wasn't much more than broadcasts from fringe cults and the shipping forecast. Despite Cartwright's cheery attitude and friendly manner, I couldn't help but think he was listening to my show not just because he enjoyed it, but because it would give him information about us. Eager not to get sidetracked, I quickly brought up Conrad and Way, asking what he wanted for them. With a feigned look of surprise, Cartwright informed me that they weren't prisoners, and they had just been giving them a lift home. 
I looked incredulously at Cartwright, but he kept nodding. Ocal didn't wait for Cartwright to change his mind and walked over to our scouts. Despite Cartwright's assurances, I could tell Ocal was waiting for the gang to attack, but they parted as he approached. I finally got a good look at Conrad and Way, and while they looked a bit shaken, the worst injury I could see was a black eye that Way was spawning. But they certainly seemed eager to leave, and that was enough to confirm my fears that Cartwright wasn't as friendly as he was making out he was. Since they're leaving, I was hope I could talk to you for a while, said Cartwright. Wanna go for a drive? He gestured towards a battered looking car. I looked back at Orcal, while his soldiers were taking Way and Conrad back to the train, he had decided to stick with me. The sergeant raised his eyebrow at this request. Cartwright explained that he just wanted to go for a drive, and how he would be gone for no more than an hour. He even invited Sophia, as he had realised she wasn't going to leave my side. I was worried that Ocal saw this as a transaction, but the train got back two valuable scouts for a podcast host and a temporarily displaced revolutionary. Before I could object, Cartwright had bundled me in as friendly a manner possible into the back of the car. Cartwright sat in the driver's seat and Sophia took the seat behind him. She raised her pistol and pointed at the back of his head before making a vague yet menacing threat to Cartwright. Am I going to have to drive the whole way there with a gun to my head? He asked with a laugh. Sophia didn't move the pistol until Cartwright explained further. He wanted us to get back to the train safely. He had something to show us and tell the others about. It made no sense to kill us. That satisfied Sophia enough for her to lower the pistol. The engine started, but it barely made a sound. Is this an electric car? I asked. Cartwright confirmed that it was and quickly denounced the evil that was the gas-guzzling non-electric car. I should say I know next to nothing about cars, and care even less about them, but one of the few things I do know is that they make a noise when they start, apart from electric cars. Part of my ignorance and indifference is that I grew up in the apocalypse, and part of this was a terrible energy crisis. For a long time virtually no one I knew had a car, as most cars needed petrol, and the infrastructure to get oil out of the ground, turn it into petrol, and transport the stuff around the world no longer existed. Any petrol that people did find ended up in the hands of some local warlord, as things got better, the central government authority. I don't even know how to drive a car, and getting a functioning licensing and regulation authority for vehicles is quite low on the CGA's list of priorities. Or as Cartwright, he loved cars, particularly this one. It turned out that this was Cartwright's pre-apocalypse car. He had in fact been an early adopter of electric cars, even back in the glory days of energy, before the apocalypse, he had believed in electric cars. He saw the simple common sense, instead of being limited to one type of resource, oil, you used electricity that could be generated by anything, coal, solar, nuclear power, it didn't matter. He railed against the short-sightedness of relying on oil, which, apocalypse or not, was never going to work long term. With pride, Cartwright told us that this was the same car he had owned before the apocalypse, and he had kept it going through the worst the world could throw at it. I had to admit, this was quite impressive. Before the apocalypse, Cartwright had been an engineer and amateur inventor, always tinkering with things, making improvements, signing new things. He boasted that he had made the wind-up radio that he had listened to my podcast on, and he shared his love of clockwork technology, winding it up and letting it go. Cartwright then moved on to the town he had built and the gang, and yes, he did call it a gang, he had formed. And how had this engineer, a man who had spent years tinkering with small devices, ever come to be the founder of a town and leader of a gang? To put it simply, he had brought back electricity. The car began to slow and I looked forward to see a tall and solid looking wooden fence. 
The gate swung open and Cartwright drove us inside. I looked back to see the gates close behind us and couldn't help but feel a little trapped. This is what I want to show you, Richard. Our town. What I know. What we built here and what we lose. It was becoming obvious that Cartwright's town was suffering an energy crisis and for some reason they, they soon wouldn't be able to generate enough electricity. And when that happened, the basis of Cartwright's power would be gone. Cartwright wasn't the first to look on the train's virtually unlimited energy supply with envy, but so far I'd seen nothing that would make him any more dangerous than the others had been. As the car slowly made its way through the town, it was getting dark and streetlights began to turn on. I asked Cartwright if energy was such a problem, why keep something so frivolous as streetlights? And I was thinking of all the more important stuff it could be used for. Cartwright looked puzzled. People are afraid of the dark, he said. Those from before the apocalypse. People who lived in cities and towns. People like me. We had no idea how dark the world was for electricity. The car stopped in front of a warehouse and Cartwright looked back with an intense look on his face and told me he was going to show us how he generated electricity for his community. Cartwright parked the car and we got out. Let me show you all the ways we generate electricity. We've tried just about any everything there is. Cartwright walked us round the town, pointing out steam engines powered by coal. The solar panels draw energy from the sun. He pointed to the tops of buildings, showing neat rows of wind turbines. He also showed us several examples of when his engineering skills had failed. A hydroelectric turbine, geothermal systems, even talking about his ambitious and by his own admission, misguided idea in trying to get energy from photosynthesizing plants. Cartwright seemed genuinely annoyed with himself that he couldn't tap into the energy of plants in what sounded to me like a completely impossible task. We reached a large warehouse and Cartwright stopped. He gestured to the building and explained that house within was the energy source they had been relying on for the past couple of years. Armed guards surrounded the warehouse and when Cartwright gave the order, they pulled open the doors. It was dark inside and it was hard to say exactly what was going on, so I walked in further to get a clearer look. Then it came into focus. Several hundred people chained together, working on machines. They were generating electricity by their work. Cartwright was suddenly beside me. You see, when I let your scouts go, I was giving up on people who could generate power. I looked at Cartwright in horror and demanded to know where the people had come from. And he patiently explained that they were just people, people they had picked up, anyone they found really. He then went on to explain the various problems using human slaves caused. First, it was quite inefficient, and then there were problems of finding and containing them, feeding them, every so often some illness would sweep through them, decimating the population. He talked about the technical difficulties and logistical problems. The matter of fact way he spoke about the whole business was chilling, and his light and friendly attitude remained, almost like he didn't seem to completely grasp what he was doing. Eventually I snapped and shouted at him that he had killed hundreds of people just to have streetlights. It's a little bit more complicated than that, Richard, said Cartwright, and he said how for years they had struggled to grow enough food to feed themselves. There was, there was just too much that could go wrong. Poor harvests, pests, disease-killing livestock. As he spoke, he removed his coat and then started unbuttoning his shirt. He pulled it open to reveal a rectangular metal plate just to the right of his heart. It was surrounded by a lot of scar tissue from poorly performed surgery. We don't eat food, you see. We made the switch to a more direct way of powering our bodies. If we don't have electricity, then we will die. That's why we need your reactor. 
He tapped the metal plate on his chest and explained how it wasn't just that that needed powering. For many of his gang, he had given them implants. An artificial hand, an artificial eye. He gestured to Anders and explained after a very nasty accident, he had fitted her with almost 20 different implants. I studied Anders carefully and could not see any evidence of this. I was saved from having to respond to this by a sudden commotion from behind. I turned to see Sophia punch one of the guards and raise her pistol. She shouted something in Polish and fired at Cartwright. Anders moved quicker than I would have thought possible and stepped in front of the bullet. Sophia was wrestled to the ground before she could get off another shot. I looked at Anders. She was on her knees, her left hand held up before her, with a large hole in the middle of her hand, her now clearly artificial mechanical hand, from where she had tried to catch the bullet. It hadn't worked exactly as she had planned, as the bullet seemed to have buried itself in her, in her arm, but she was alive. So was Cartwright. He checked on his saviour and then rushed forward to Sophia, yelling at his men not to hurt her. They managed to get Sophia's gun away from her and then released her. She jumped to her feet and one hand went to her saber, but she stopped, thought better of it, and stormed back to the car. I don't like using this fuel. It's inefficient, said Cartwright as he walked back to me. And if your captain cooperates, I won't have to. I shrugged. I was past giving Cartwright the benefit of the doubt and told him point blank that the captain wouldn't give him what he wanted. Spoken with an air of phony reasonableness, he stated that all he wanted was half of the energy from the reactor. Cartwright thought he was being generous, and I could tell that he wasn't used to negotiating. Normally if he wanted something, him and his gang took it. He talked me through the simple process of hooking some cables up to the reactor, how easy it would all be, no disruption to anyone. I said nothing. He smiled and asked me that I pass the message along to the captain and I nodded. We began walking back to the car. Good luck with the repairs on your engine. It's not working, is it? The implication was clear. We weren't going anywhere. As we reached the car, he had one last thing to say to me. His gang wasn't just a bunch of folks with clubs and a few guns. And he advised us not to underestimate him. Cartwright stared at me and I tried to maintain eye contact with him just to prove I was as tough as he was. I failed. Sophia was sitting cross-legged on the boot of the car, smoking, one of the several modern bad habits she had picked up. I could tell she was agitated. Sophia had lived through the time of the French Revolution and Napoleon, a woman whose country had ceased to exist when its neighbours decided to carve it up. She was from a time when, if you saw something you didn't like, you took action. You did something more direct than tutting or complaining, which is what I usually did. I was actually pleased when Cartwright said he wouldn't be taking us back, as I knew that if Sophia was in a confined space with him, she would try to kill him. Instead, two unnamed gang members would take us back. Sophia would get her gun once we arrived. It was one of the more awkward journeys I've ever had, and was passed in complete silence. It's hard to have a pleasant conversation with people involved in slavery. We reached the train and could see that Cartwright's gang was still there, still surrounding the train. I'll admit that I felt very tense. Would we simply be allowed back to the train? Would they hold us as hostages, or kill us as soon as we got out of the car? When the car stopped, I stepped out and tried to act calm. Sophia jumped out, slamming the door behind her, and walking quickly back to the train. I started walking back when our driver shouted at me to stop. I froze. She forgot this, he said, and handed me Sophia's gun. In the panic, I thanked him, took the weapon, and then hurried back to the train. As I stepped on board, I was about to demand to see the captain when she appeared before me. I found myself hustled into her carriage, pushed into a comfortable chair, and a glass of brandy pressed into my hand, and asked to tell her exactly what had happened. 
I relayed the trip to Cartwright City and admitted, grudgingly, that his accomplishments were quite impressive, if many of them reprehensible. I explained about the slaves and I outlined my suspicions that our missing scouts were either amongst those slaves or killed by Cartwright when he realised that enslaving our crew might have serious consequences. I then got into Cartwright's offer and the threat that came with it. Should we be worried about him? I'm not scared of his gang and his little homemade catapults. Does he have something up his sleeve? The captain asked me. It was a prudent question. After all, Cartwright was too clever to attempt some direct assault with only machetes and a few electric cars. I had already explained to the captain how Cartwright's gang were powered by electricity and the implants that some of them had, of Anders' speed and how Cartwright had hinted he had more powerful weapons than we realised. The captain wasn't intimidated or impressed. Convinced that if Cartwright thought he could beat us in a fight, then he wouldn't waste time negotiating. She then told me the best news I had heard in days. The engineers were confident the engine would be working soon. If things went to plan, we might be able to get out of the area without a shot being fired. The last thing I said to the captain was that if nothing else, Cartwright and his gang were desperate. They would attack. They had no other option. I hurried back to my own carriage, passing busy soldiers quickly preparing defences and readying weapons. As well as the soldiers, there was a contingent of venturers, soldiers of fortune, and mysterious yet dangerous individuals who were all on the train for various reasons, getting ready for the fight. The soldiers had even brought some of the more unusual weapons out of storage. Apparently, even the captain didn't fancy Cartwright's chances, she was taking sensible precautions. While the captain was certainly less trigger-happy than the soldiers, when time called for it, she was willing to use our superior firepower to devastate an effect. The Central Government Authority has asked that I pass on some good news stories. Apparently, some find this podcast, quote, endlessly bleak, end quote. As such, here are the following good news stories. The CGA is very happy to announce a successful end to Operation Frenzy, their two-year campaign removing the undead from the area north of Hoha in China, what had been part of the China-Mongolia border. The operation culminated in a battle with the undead which lasted for 14 days and saw nearly 4 million zombies destroyed. Casualties for CGA forces numbered 1,024, proving the effectiveness of the CGA's new tactics when dealing with zombies. While this is a massive victory in terms of the number of zombies killed, it ranks only as number 6, number 1 being the CGA's 5 week long battle on the outskirts of Salvador in Brazil which saw 9 million zombies destroyed. Second, the CGA has made the first successful journey through the so-called Lost Trail Forest in Croatia. The mysterious small wooded area that suddenly appeared in the first years of the apocalypse has grown steadily over the years. Even before the formation of the CGA, the forest had a dark reputation, with reportedly no one who entered the forest ever coming out alive. Skeptical CGA representatives were eager to dismiss what they believed to be little more than fairy stories. But in the eight years since the first official attempt, 32 separate parties have vanished within the forest, never to be seen again. This latest and successful attempt saw 14 experienced explorers enter the forest. Nine days later, a single team member, the Rana Buzik, emerged on the other side of the forest. Despite Buzik's extensive injuries and unsettled frame of mind, the CGA considered this a success and are planning a further expedition. Finally this week, the CGA announced they have taken over control of the Tecoma Institute. Before the apocalypse, this was designed as a repository for as many kinds of life form as they could get their hands on. Everything from the DNA of dinosaurs to genetically engineered viruses, 
Everything that will be needed if, oh, I don't know, the apocalypse happened and we need to start again. The Tacoma Institute is located in the harshest Siberian climate possible, and for a long time, re-establishing control of the Institute was on the CGA's to-do list. Not only will it mean we are able to clone species that went extinct during the apocalypse, and yes, that means pandas, but all the dangerous viruses, bacteria, and assorted plagues also housed there are now in safe hands. Back to the narrative. Just from the tension in the air, you could tell a fight was inevitable. Cartwright had called in more of his gang, and it became obvious we were heavily outnumbered, but everyone on the train remained confident of victory. I was nervous. Not because I had some psychological insight to Cartwright, or had spotted some tactical issue that could prove disastrous for our side, but simply because I get nervous all the time, and apparently my nerves are even there when there is something genuinely to be nervous about. I paced in my carriage. I drank. While Sophia watched The Single Detective. The original BBC television version, obviously. At one point, Cole stopped by to check I was okay, and I was surprised at the restraint he had shown. He was a man who wore a revolver to dinner. I had expected a real fight when I've seen him weighed down by his huge private collection of guns. Instead, Colt carried his favourite revolver and had a rifle slung over his shoulder. Colt didn't stay long. He and Sophia don't get on. As it began to grow dark, a car horn beeped loudly. I rushed to the window and could see Cartwright standing on a truck, a megaphone in his hand. He addressed the captain, but he wanted all of us to hear it. He knew I would have relayed his offer to the captain, and now wanted a response. The captain had ten minutes to get back to him. If there was no response, he would attack. The time seemed to pass very slowly. I glanced out and could see Cartwright's gang preparing for a fight. From what I could see, very few of them had guns. Evidently, Cartwright did not have some secret cache of weapons he had been saving. It increasingly looked that the captain was right. Cartwright and his gang would be wiped out. The last few seconds ticked by and for a long moment nothing happened. Then came the attack. A thick grey smoke began to emanate from Cartwright's base, presumably to help cover his attack. I held my breath and waited. It came quickly. It was a strange sound of moving machinery and then explosions. Incendiary devices, something like napalm, had been launched at us and they burned against the outside of the train, causing damage but nothing we couldn't handle. Then there was a barrage of arrows, spears and rocks, fired from a variety of contraptions. They barely even scratched the train. Then came the actual attackers, and they were a real surprise. I saw what seemed to be the first of them, charging towards the train, a baseball bat in his hands. There was the sound of a single gunshot from a sniper. It brought down the attacker, but only for a moment, and then he was back on his feet and running, running at incredible speed. As he neared the train, he was brought down by heavy machine gun fire, and this time, he stayed down. But there were more. Dozens of bizarrely quick attackers who seemingly shrugged off anything less than a close-range volley of fire. The calm confidence of the defenders was beginning to be shaken, and it wasn't long before the impossible happened and they actually reached the train. The plan had always been to slaughter them from a comfortable distance, but close quarters fighting would be very different. Sophia stood by the window, pistol in her hand and sabre at her hip. I sat in my favourite chair with a notepad, writing about what was happening, to use a later for the podcast. Looking back now at my notes, they are little more than gibberish and terrible handwriting, but at the time it helped distract me from the battle. Sophia muttered something in Polish under her breath, what I believed to be particularly robust swearing. So far the sounds of the battle had been of automatic gunfire and explosions, 
but this now changed to the sound of fighting and cries of pain. The window Sophia was standing next to shattered, the glass exploding inwards. I watched paralysed by fear as Sophia raised her pistol and fired, emptying her clip in seconds. She ducked back down and reloaded. Just outside the door to my carriage I heard an explosion and seconds later followed by someone trying to open the door. When they found it was locked they began beating on the door. Without investigating who was on the other side, Sophia emptied another clip into the door. There were a few cries of pain and a moment of peace before someone else attacked the door. Sophia had her gun ready to fire again when one of the windows on the other side of my carriage shattered as someone crashed through it. The attacker slammed into the other side of the carriage but was quickly on their feet. They had dozens of cut in their body but seemed almost totally oblivious to them. He charged towards Sophia who simply pressed the trigger down as the gun was pointed in his direction. While Sophia was quite taken with some of our modern weaponry, she lacked any real skill or finesse with firearms. She loved automatic weapons as they allowed her to fire hundreds of bullets in seconds and with all those bullets she was bound to hit something. With this attacker though, a good aim would have helped. Most of her bullets struck the attacker but he kept coming. My guess was that Cartwright had zapped his gang members with a great deal of electricity, giving them a short burst of tremendous energy and power. Cuts, broken bones, even gunshot wounds were little more than inconveniences. In the short term, anyway. The attacker ploughed on through the bullets and crashed into Zofia. The man was much larger and heavier than her, and I thought she was a goner, bound to lose in such a struggle. I should have had more confidence in her. After all, Zofia had been fighting and killing for Napoleon for years, and it can't have been the first time she fought someone stronger than her. She attacked the man's eyes and then bit into his neck, actually drawing blood, but when that failed to stop him, she attacked his fingers, breaking several of them. She managed to scramble out from underneath the man, drew her sabre and brought it down on the back of his neck. It took several good whacks before he finally stopped moving. Unfortunately the battle hadn't paused while Sophia had been dealing with this person and the door to my carriage burst open and another attacker ran straight at me. I didn't have any time to react, but even if I had, my brain would not have supplied me with an effective defence. The attacker charged in swinging a fire axe wildly in my direction. Had she taken a more calculated swing, she probably would have killed me. Instead, it hit the back of the antique armchair I had rescued from a coffee shop in Berlin. I was momentarily distracted by the damage done to an irreplaceable piece of furniture and didn't even think to move before she had janked the axe free and managed to hit me on the head as she did, knocking me from the chair. Fortunately, the few seconds my attacker had wasted with her inaccurate swing had allowed Sophia to deal with her own problem and help me with mine. It took three bullets to kill her and then Sophia added another three just to make sure. I was in absolute shock and looked round my devastated carriage. Sophia was leaning against the wall, catching her breath, her hand resting on her ribs when the train started moving. The sound of the engine coming to life was beautiful, if on careful inspection, a little underwhelming. The train slowly chugged forward at a speed that would not cause our attackers too many problems, but it was something. I approached the window and cautiously looked out. Our attackers were given chase, some were running after the train and jumping onto whatever carriage they could reach, while others joined Cartwright's convoy of electric vehicles which sped after us. Sophia was walking slowly across the carriage, her hands still on her ribs. She was hurt. Not that she acknowledged it. I rubbed my head and suddenly a memory rose to the surface of my mind. Back when I had been in the train's basement, looking through the asset register detailing each item held there, it was a weapon that would be perfect for the situation. A very special electromagnetic pulse generator, something that would stop all the implants Cartwright had installed from working, and would presumably kill them. 
Even better, virtually everything on board the train was protected against EMP weapons. More accurately, EMPs caused by nuclear weapons. I doubted Cartwright's cobbled together implants could say the same. I told Sophia about the EMP generator and she felt it was our duty to alert the captain. It was entirely possible she knew nothing of the weapon, such was the poor state of the records on board. I tried the train's internal communication system but got no response. We would have to go in person. That was not the only reason we decided to get out of our carriage. As we were now moving, my carriage's position was a particular problem. Anyone travelling from the back of the train, which would now be most of the attackers, would have to pass through. While we had been stationary, the attack had been focused on the lead carriages. Sophia reloaded her pistol and passed me the bag full of spare ammunition. At least I could do something useful by carrying it. We left my carriage and headed forward, stepping over many dead gang members, but also, occasionally, the bodies of people from the train. The carriages themselves had borne the brunt of the attack relatively well. There were bullet holes and scorch marks, but they remained intact. While this section of the train was relatively quiet, both behind and ahead of us were still the sounds of fighting. Gunfire, explosions, screams. Part of me wanted to stay where we were in what seemed like relative safety, but I knew it wouldn't be long before they caught up to us. We moved through two carriages containing only dead bodies when Sophia stopped. Behind the next door were the sounds of fighting. Sophia cocked her gun. You want to go in there? I asked incredulously. And Sophia pointed out it was the only way through and made it was an absurd suggestion. We could go on the roof of the train. The train still wasn't moving very fast, but even so, it was incredibly dangerous. Yet it seemed slightly less dangerous than bursting into the next carriage. Thankfully, no one else had been foolish slash brave enough to try this, and we had the roof to ourselves. Despite Sophia's injuries, she made far quicker progress as I crawled along behind her. Thinking back, we really weren't going too fast, but I don't know if I've ever been so terrified. Eventually, we made it to near the front of the train, where it simply wasn't possible to walk along and we climbed down. All of the fighting seemed to be further behind us. Sophia reached for the door to the carriage, and I grabbed her wrist, stopping her, and knocked loudly, clearly announcing ourselves. The door was slowly opened and a cautious soldier peered out. Satisfied we were who we claimed to be, she let us enter. Inside were a dozen or so tired looking soldiers, a handful of adventurers, including Colt. There was also the captain, Elizabeth Lizzie Cooper, the social media consultant for the Weird Adler Company, and a couple of other important people from the train, who had presumably headed to this carriage for protection. I immediately launched into a fast explanation of what had brought us here. That in the basement was a weapon, an EMP that would wipe out Cartwright's gun with a flick of a switch. I trailed off when I noticed that sitting on the desk in front of the captain was the very weapon I spoke of. This led to an incredibly awkward conversation between me and the captain, with Sophia occasionally making angry and loud contributions. It eventually became clear that the captain was holding the weapon back as an emergency measure. She didn't feel comfortable killing so many people with a flick of a switch. I mentioned how all those people were being gunned down as we spoke but before they died, they were killing their own people. The captain was on her feet and had grabbed me by my jacket before I knew what was happening. She pushed me against the side of the carriage and spoke in a hushed but menacing voice how nothing was more important to her than the safety of the people on board. As I have mentioned before, the captain is an intimidating woman and I felt extremely threatened, so much so that I essentially forgot all of my objections and my mind was entirely focused on how to get out of the situation. It was called who interceded, apologising on my behalf to the captain gently moving the captain's hands from me. I breathed a sigh of relief. I had been worried that Sophia might even do something as foolish as to draw her gun against the captain. I looked around the carriage for Sophia, 
she was nowhere to be seen. Where's Sophia? I asked, and then my eyes settled on the desk the captain had been sitting behind. The desk that until moments ago the AMP had rested on. The carriage exploded into action as everyone tried to work out where Sophia had gone. Someone in the carriage had called for calm and quite sensibly asked, would Sophia even know how to work the weapon? This was answered a moment later by a high-pitched tone and a shudder that seemed to pass through the air. I flung the door to the carriage open and could see Sophia not far from the train, the weapon on the ground before her and all around the train the motionless bodies of Cartwright's gang. The train came to a gentle stop and I jumped down and ran to Sophia. I wasn't sure if I was pleased or angry with what she had done. Before I had a chance to even talk with Sophia, we were interrupted by someone I had assumed dead, and has dropped down from the top of the train, practically on top of me. She jabbed out the side of her hand into my throat. I collapsed to the ground, gasping for air. I heard the sound of Sophia unloading her clip at Anders, and then a brief commotion before Sophia was thrown through the air, hitting the side of the train, and disappeared in my vision, looking down at me. They're all dead, she said. I tried to talk, but all that came out was a rasp, but she knew what I was asking. They were electric, and clockwork. Her hand became a fist, and I was desperately hoping that Zephyr would get up and help me, or Colt would stop Anders, or someone would intervene. But they didn't. Instead, Anders sighed. What's the point, she asked, and started walking away from me. I took a few moments to catch my breath and recover, and then shakingly got onto my hands and knees and started to crawl over to Sophia. Then I heard the gunshot, and this time it was Colt. He had brought down Anders. He looked down at me for a moment and then headed towards the woman he had shot. We'll leave it there for this week. The attack is over, Jenny be defeated, and the train has been repaired. At the end of the line was written and recorded by Richard Oliver. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate on iTunes. Follow the show on Twitter at PostApoc Podcasts. Anyone wanting to submit questions, ask for advice, or make urgent pleas for help, should tweet us or send an email to at the end of the line podcast at gmail.com. Today's advice is remember to get everything you need for your journey well in advance. Currency, vaccinations, silver bullets, charms to ward off demons, as trust me, it'll be three times as expensive to get locally. <laughs>